This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. What is technology doing to us? How does it affect our ability to work, to be present, to connect to one another? Podcaster Aliyah Tavakolian wonders about these things all the time, and tech journalist Bob Sullivan has spent his life finding the answers. Their new podcast, So Bob, is your opportunity to ask So Bob, how can I live a better digital life? Follow So Bob on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. What's the most effective path to success in any domain? It's not what you think. Plenty of experts argue that anyone who wants to develop a skill, play an instrument, or lead in their field should start early, focus intensely, and rack up as many hours of deliberate practice as possible. And if you dabble or delay, you'll never catch up to the people who got a head start. But if you take a closer look at the world's top performers, from professional athletes to Nobel laureates, you'll find that early specialization is the exception, not the rule. David Epstein, author of the New York Times bestseller The Sports Gene, studied the world's most successful athletes, artists, musicians, inventors, forecasters, and scientists. He discovered that in most fields, especially those that are complex and unpredictable, generalists, not specialists, are primed to excel. He writes about it in a new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, and today David joins me on the podcast to talk about it. David reveals the flaw in the whole popular 10,000 hours theory, but says it hasn't hurt his friendship with Malcolm Gladwell. In fact, Gladwell wrote a rave review for his book. David shares why athletes should be more like Roger Federer than Tiger Woods, the fallacy of giving your children a head start, and how it could actually hinder them in the long run. He reveals why serial innovators tend to have a broad range of knowledge and experience, how corporate hiring practices often weed out those people, and what companies should be looking for in new recruits. David also says technology brings good news and bad news because the Internet and open-source information is a boon to generalists, but artificial intelligence may put a lot of specialists out of business. He encourages the trend of midlife career changes, dismisses popular traits like grit and determination in favor of dabbling and experimentation, and throws out the old advice, think before you act. He says, act, then decide. Plus, how Venetian orphans inspired the world's greatest composers, why Nobel laureates always have a hobby, and why experts make terrible forecasters. Coming up with David Epstein in just a moment. David Epstein is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene. He has master's degrees in environmental science and journalism and has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. His latest book is called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David, welcome to the podcast. Very glad to be here. You have a rave review on the back of this book by Mr. Malcolm Gladwell, and yet this book pretty much flies in the face of the whole deliberate practice movement and Malcolm's 10,000 hours concept. Uh, what's wrong with his approach? So, well, 
the 10,000 and what he has said actually is that one of the reasons he gave a rave review to this book is because I think the review he has on the back of the book says something like um, for reasons he can't explain, he enjoyed being told that everything he thinks about something is wrong. <laughs> and and it's not that the 10,000 hours uh, rule, you know, this idea that you need to accumulate 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to become an expert. Um, there's Practice is great. But as Malcolm himself has now said, when we were recently invited to to a conference to talk about this, he said, I now believe I was wrong in thinking that that also implied that you should start on exactly the thing you want to get good at and do only that as early as possible. So he said he thought that was a corollary of the 10,000-hour rule. And actually, some of the project of this book came out of the first time I met him when we were set up for a debate. But Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that because you kind of became friends and you say during yeah. long runs that you two take together, uh, you've had these conversations about specialists versus generalists. Huh? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a borderline world-class Myler for his age group, by the oh, way. Really? And I was a competitive yeah. runner. And so it's a good fit. But the first time we ever met was in 2014 at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. So it's a conference co-founded by the general manager of the Rockets, all dedicated to data science, basically. And we were invited. And it was framed as 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. right? <laughs> and it's up on YouTube. And, you know, he's very clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed. <laughs> and so, so I did my... My homework. I mean, I start both of my books. The first year of research, I just try to read 10 journal articles a day, um, every day for the, for the first year, no writing. And so I have this huge store of papers that I can refer to. And so I assumed he would have to argue that for, that of, for the primary importance of a head start, of, a, of early specialization in technical training, whatever you want to do. So I looked through all the research that tracks athletes' development, mm-hmm. and what it showed was that, in fact, the athletes who go on to become elite usually have what sports scientists call a sampling period where they gain a breadth of general skills. Uh, They learn about their own abilities, their own interests, and they systematically delay specialization until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so I called this the Roger versus Tiger problem, where (laughs) Tiger Woods, very early specialization, and that's the story that we've all extrapolated from. Roger Federer, nobody knows his story. It was he played a ton of different sports when he was a kid. Um, Mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally, actually forced him to continue playing badminton, basketball, soccer long after his peers were more specialized, and obviously he turned out okay. And so what I wanted to see was which one of these is the norm Mm -hmm. going to the top, and it turned out it's the Roger path by far. And so when we came off the stage, he sort of said, you know what you got me on was that Roger versus Tiger thing. You know, you should think <laughs> about writing more about that. And so that's how it became the intro became Roger versus Tiger. And I sort okay. of filed it away until some yeah. other stuff happened. And then it came back to my head, basically. Yeah. Later. And it's interesting because I guess we don't know Roger Federer's story. No, even and the tennis fans don't. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. And it's probably because Tiger Woods fits into that mold of, you know, the child genius, like a Mozart or someone exactly. that it's a more romantic story. Exactly. It, it also gives gives a really specific template for people who, you know, there's like right. a half dozen bestsellers yeah. built on extrapolating Tiger Woods' story mm-hmm. to other domains in the world, <laughs> um, to, to every other domain, essentially. Yeah. And so, I mean, Tiger Woods was on national television at age two golfing. And so it spurred a hyper, you know, early specialization cottage industry for an extremely large cottage. Are there some instances where giving your kid a head start might actually hinder them in the long term? Yeah, a bunch of them. One of the studies that to me was the single most surprising in the book, which was in the in the education chapter. 
And the theme of that chapter is basically that the techniques that help someone to learn the most rapidly, like make apparent progress, often undermine their long-term development. And so hmm. so the study, the one at the Air Force Academy, where um, yeah. which you could never recreate, you know. <laughs> so at the Air Force Academy, students that come in every year have to take three math courses in sequence, same test in every class, and they are randomized to professors for calculus one, then re-randomized for calculus two, and then re-randomized again for the final course. So you get this incredible experiment on thousands of students if you look over the years. And what the researchers found was that the professors who were the best at getting their their students to do well on the calculus one exam, then somehow systematically undermine the long-term development of those students. So they would then go on to underperform in calculus two and all the other follow-on courses. And so when they looked into it, what they found, and and by the way, this was sort of dangerous too, because the professors whose students would, would overachieve in calculus one would get the best reviews from the students. And so the professor who had, whose students did the sixth best in Calculus One and got the seventh best ratings out of 100 professors was dead last in what the researchers called deep learning, which meant his students then went on to underperform by a ton in the next classes. Huh. And what the researchers found was that these professors were the ones who taught a much more narrow array of ideas. So they could get very fast improvements in performance because they were teaching what's called using procedures knowledge, like mm-hmm. how to execute certain procedures for problems. And that was going to be on the test, so they did fine. But because they didn't broaden the curriculum and connect all these different concepts and, and force, instead of using procedures, force the learners how to figure out how to match a strategy to a problem, they kind of undermine their further development. And so that's really scary because it means that these signs of immediate progress um, are really, uh, they fool us, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, it almost seems like sort of a tortoise and the hare effect where totally. you get a little bit of a head start and it may help you out. You may be uh, reading an extra grade above where you're supposed to be, but the long term, in fact, you say in the book that people who don't have a head start and do that sampling over a period of time early on, they spring ahead eventually. That's right. That's right. And so this has been called in in a lot of research, both in sports and in education and in other areas, the fade-out effect, where you see these head starts that, you know, who doesn't want to have a head start? And then somewhere along the line, these people who were broader earlier uh, catch up and then pass by. And it turns out that the fade-out effect is not actually a disappearance of skill or knowledge, but it's actually that the way to give people the quickest advantage is to teach so-called closed skills or using procedures knowledge, which is is sort of narrow knowledge that you can only use in certain situations. Mm. Whereas what you really want, and I think this is one of the themes of the book, whether it's physical skills or cognitive skills, what you really want is to force people to develop these broader models of problem solving where instead of executing procedures, they are learning to match strategies to problems because when you have that kind of knowledge called making connections knowledge, you can then apply your skills to problems you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's the most important thing. Yeah, I think you say the, the specialists fare in what you call a kind domain and generalists thrive in a wicked or unkind domain. Right. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and those are, those are terms uh, created by psychologist Robin Hogarth, the kind learning environment and the, and the wicked learning environment. And a kind learning environment, and this is a spectrum, it's not just sort of two uh, discrete points, but a kind learning environment is where all the information is available uh, to see. 
Um, people often take turns, like things happen in discrete patterns. There are lots of rules. Uh, the next steps are very clear. They're not hidden from you. Whenever you do something, you get feedback that is immediate and fully accurate. So so golf, for instance, right? Yeah. Like you wait to take turns. All the information is clear. You know exactly what you have to do. Feedback's immediate and accurate. On the other end of the spectrum are wicked domains where people aren't waiting to take turns. Human behavior is involved. Um, next steps may not be clear. You may be trying to solve new problems or problems you haven't seen before. Feedback may be delayed if you get it at all and may be partially accurate or inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So Hogarth uses this example I love of a famous New York City physician who uh, became renowned because he could diagnose typhoid in patients like way ahead of when they had any symptoms by palpating their tongue or feeling around their tongue with his hands. And he, time and time again, he was right. And then one of his colleagues later pointed out that he was a more productive carrier using only his hands than typhoid Mary had been. So it was actually he was transferring typhoid, so his predictions were always accurate. So this was a case where the feedback reinforced the exact wrong lesson. Yeah. So mo- most most learning environments aren't that wicked either. Mm-hmm. But in the learning environments where you have to face situations you've never quite seen before, mm-hmm. that's where you want to have had this broad development early so that mm-hmm. you form these models that you can flexibly fit um, because you can't just use your procedures yeah. over and over. I'm assuming that most of the innovation and the groundbreaking that goes on happens in the wicked domains where you don't have a path forward, by that, almost by definition. That, exact. That's a great way to put it. And that's why I included some research on technological innovators where it looked at, you know, analyzing like millions of patents and the careers of creators, um, you know, both looked at it across companies and within a particular company that, mm-hmm. that I talk about. Um to see who makes the biggest impact. And it turns out that there were types of technological problems where specialists are better when the next, next steps are pretty clear, when you know where you need to go, basically. But when the problems were less clear, it was the people who had worked across the largest number of different types of technology, as classified by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, who made by far the biggest impacts when the next steps weren't totally clear. Uh, Yeah, someone in the book did a study of serial innovators, and one of the common characteristics was that they have that wide breadth of knowledge. And it goes to something that we see a lot with tech companies where you have two co-founders. It's often the visionary, not the programmer, who gets the credit. There's a reason that we know Steve Jobs better than we know Steve Wozniak, right? Right, right, for sure. And I think they sort of represent that... um, you know, at one point in the book, I, I quote the eminent physicist and mathematician Freeman Dyson. He he had this great speech where he said, we need both frogs and birds. You know, and if we think about Jobs and, and, and Wozniak, he said, frogs are down in the mud and they're seeing the little details. He was talking about science specifically, but I think it holds for other things. Whereas the birds are up above not seeing the details, but they can see the different, you know, the high level view and how the different parts connect and integrate them. And what he said is that the problem is we are only telling people to become frogs. And the frogs alone end up having no ability to integrate knowledge across domains the way that someone like Jobs does. Even the process of writing this book is a good example of taking a narrow focus and finding broader and perhaps unexpected overlap and applications in a variety of other disciplines. What are some of the other fields besides sports where you were surprised to learn that generalists excelled? Certainly music, because I, mm-hmm. I was surprised to find this in sports in the first case. I didn't really – I mean I knew it by the time I came to that debate with Malcolm, but before that I didn't know it. Yeah. Like the proposal for my first book was like pro 10,000-hour rule and then I like dove into the research and was – you know had this period where like either I'm crazy or this work is not good. Um, <laughs> and 
music, I was surprised to find it because yeah. it's, it's the domain where is, as with sports, maybe like the most associated with early specialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think of kids practicing violin or piano after school every single day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it turns out, though, that the normal path for the top musicians is that they go through a sampling period also. And mm-hmm. in fact, if you look at their development longitudinally, and I think there are a lot of ways to get to expertise, and I think there's some areas of like classical music where where maybe you can specialize early or sort of generalize early and you can be okay. But um, these students, when they look more closely at their development, they actually try to sample a bunch of different instruments and their practice volume usually explodes after they find an instrument that fits them and a genre of music that fits them, not hmm. before. So it's not just that they're like practice-aholics. It's that they go through things and find something, what economists call match quality. They mm-hmm. maximize their match quality and that's when their practice explodes. And in the more improvisational forms of music, the specialization is totally unheard of, right? So the, the yeah, ones associated with yeah. is like the Suzuki school, which, by the way, yeah. <laughs> if you read their tenets, says music should be learned like language. We don't teach grammar first. You you throw people in, immerse them, let them try yeah. and fail, teach the grammar later. But in our – for even me and in the public consciousness, I think it's associated with drilling, but that's not actually the case. Yeah, it makes me think of people like Irving Berlin, the composer, who – couldn't read or write music. He always played by ear. And also, uh, I'm a big fan of Django Reinhardt. You mentioned him in this book as an example of that. Oh, man. Django. Yeah, I ended up... <laughs> this was one of the unexpected things in this book. It, it launched new interest for me, and I ended oh, yeah. up like trying to collect all of Django's... You know, So so Django Reinhardt was a, was a Romani musician. Right. Um, Gypsy jazz, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he sort of experimented with the violin, fiddle was like the sort of normal instrument, but he, he wasn't that into that actually. So he didn't work very hard at that. And then someone got him this kind of hybrid banjo guitar and that was like totally his thing and he loved it and would go around like improving and trying to imitate other instruments with his guitar. And he was getting really good. But then when he was about 17 or 18, his wagon caught on fire and he he was burned all over half his body. He was in, you know, couldn't do anything for like a year and he lost the use of two fingers on his on his fretting hand. And after that, he had to reinvent how to play with basically two fingers and his thumb on his fretting hand. And that's when his wow. his creativity completely exploded. And he like recreated, you know, he sort of invented like he's like the the godfather of like the guitar solo, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it was incredible. So I collected enough stuff so I could hear him before and after that injury. And it was this doing this stuff that you know, was slow and that nobody would prescribe that led him to be this incredible, incredible problem wow. solver, basically. Are there examples of famous people who might be popularly portrayed as specialists, but were really drawing on a much broader breadth of experience? We just don't know about it? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that's true for most of the specialists that, that we think of. Really? So the two, if I had to say like the two people that I think, and, and you tell me if you think of another one, that are like the most associated with specialization in best-selling books are Tiger Woods and Mozart. In Mozart, I started going through letters and found these incredible letters where um, a musician was writing to his sister and, and was recounting meeting Mozart when he was a kid. He was playing with Mozart's father. He was invited over to play some chamber music. And little Mozart came down and said, asked, can I play second violin? And Mozart's father didn't say, like, you know, we're going to drill you. He said, you haven't had any lessons. Like, go away. You you can't huh. play second violin. Really? And Mozart starts crying, little Mozart. And so this other musician who's writing the letter says, he says, okay, I'll go play with him for a little while, you know, to keep. And then they hear from the next room someone playing, like, that part perfectly. Huh. And so the 
the this musician says he sees Mozart's father starts to to tear up basically, and they start clapping, you know, for for a little Wolfgang. And then the the letter writer says he was emboldened by our applause to then say, "I can play first violin too," <laughs> and that's when his father, um, you know, sort of started ramping yeah. up the opportunities for okay. him to do training. It was it was. So he wasn't pushed necessarily. It wasn't pushed. No. So if someone, you know, finds that kind of match quality early and, – and then Mozart actually exposed himself to an incredible array of music. Like he did stuff that's way outside of just his most famous pieces. I mean he started traveling around to hear like different types of music. In fact, he intersected with these other musicians I wrote about in the book because when I was looking over their records, oh, yeah. I started finding records of his visits. Yeah, that's musicians. fascinating. I assume that you're talking about this group of women musicians who were, I guess, orphans in yeah. Venice, and they also inspired Vivaldi and the Modern Symphony and all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. What was it that was special about them? Yeah, so these are the so-called filia del coro, which means daughters of the choir. And basically, Venice in the in the 17th and 18th century had this. They had a very vibrant sex industry, and. Um, they had a problem with baby girls would be thrown in the canals if the the girls are prostitutes. And so they started these social service institutions where you could bring a baby over and it was like the like the carry-on thing, you know, before you go on an airplane where if it, there was a there was like a notch in the wall and if the baby was small enough to fit in that, <laughs> then they would take it, no questions asked, and raise the baby. Wow. And they wanted these girls to become self-sufficient so they would learn skills, you know, sewing, whatever, accounting, all this stuff. And people started donating instruments to these institutions and they would try to learn every one because they would be incentivized. Like they didn't have to do other chores if they were playing music or whatever. So they would try to learn every instrument, some of which musicologists don't even know what they are because the names are so obscure now. And the girls would be taught to learn every one of them. And because of that, composers wanted to work for them because there was all this creative potential that they hadn't had before. Yeah. So Vivaldi signed up as like their special composer and did um, – you know, like his groundbreaking work, which was introducing these virtuoso soloists, it was these orphans of the Venetian sex industry that where he like sort of blew up the concerto, um, you know, and and I think still like Four Seasons is probably still like as close to, you know, a pop hit as 300-year-old music gets basically. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with David Epstein when we come back in just a minute. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com KICK. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash kick. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. SiriusXM brings you the deepest variety of commercial-free music for every genre and for every mood. 
where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment, and comedy, where you get news from every source. A lot of people think you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM, but you don't. You can listen outside the car. Right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Just go to SiriusXM kick to see offer details and to subscribe. For one buck, you can listen to SiriusXM on your phone, at home, and online. So anywhere you are, any time of day, you can hear your favorite songs or discover new ones. Go to Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, X-M dot com slash kick and get your first three months of Sirius XM outside the car for a dollar. See offer details, offer available to new Sirius XM streaming subscribers. Sirius XM, no car required. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the place you're from. They've combined DNA results with over a hundred million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestors' journey over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. And to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree so your ancestors become more than just a name. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story with unique features that give a more complete picture about a person. My wife recently took an Ancestry DNA test to learn more about her Scottish heritage, only to learn that she's not Scottish at all, she's Irish. You just never know what kind of surprises might be in store for you when you start exploring your own family tree. Now, I'm a big history buff and especially interested in my own history, so I just sent in my own Ancestry DNA kit, and it took five minutes. It was so easy, and I can't wait to find out more about where my family came from, see if some of the old family legends are really true, and learn more about the people who came before me. Talk about the thrill of discovery. Go to Ancestry.com today to purchase your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com to purchase your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com And now, back to the show. Now, I want to apply some of this to business. When it comes to business hiring and managing personnel, what can they do to seek out and better integrate generalists into their organizations? That's a great question. And I think if you make the descriptions of your, your job descriptions too narrow, you're not going to get these people because these people, they zigzag uh, around their careers and their domains. They have lots of interests outside of their field. They've often worked outside of their field. They have a need to network with people in other fields and other domains. They have more hobbies um, than the other people who work around them. And all this stuff that looks like, yeah. you know, as as Santiago Ramon y Cajal, the, the father of modern neuroscience, I quoted him saying, it looks like from... From afar, it looks as if they are dissipating their energies when, in mm -hmm. fact, they're channeling right. and strengthening them. Right, because when you look at a resume, a lot of times someone who's hiring just looks for the degree of their linear experience within right. a particular area. And, and I think it's a bit of a problem because, you know, I talk a little bit about how I was also inspired to write this book by some military veterans who were worried that they were getting yeah. behind in their careers. And they would talk about, like, their LinkedIn profiles and say, like, it doesn't look very linear. And... I just saw some research. This isn't in the book, but some research from LinkedIn's chief economist where they analyzed a half million members, you know, because they have these incredible databases, and they were looking for the predictors of who would go on to become an executive. 
And one of the strongest predictors was the number of different job functions that they had worked across with the industry. Now, this may be a dumb question, David, but can you replace a generalist with a team of specialists covering all of that person's particular skills? Do the sum of the parts equal a whole? That is an awesome question. And I had that exact same question while I was reporting and so looked for any domains where I could find that question addressed. And when I could find it addressed, the answer was you could not just replace broad individuals with teams. Why is that? My speculation is that at a certain point, when you have to integrate a certain amount of knowledge, the, the process loss basically overcomes the benefit of integration. And that the, the, the economists who did the – well, one of them is an economist that did the comic book study. They suggested that the best unit of integration is the individual and that they can integrate in a way um, that sometimes teams can't. So they titled their paper – Superman or the Fantastic Four. And they said, if you can get a Superman creator who's worked across many genres, do that. If not, try to assemble a diverse team. <laughs> How does AI and the changing job landscape play into all this? Is that good for generalists? I, I think it's definitely good for generalists um, because the most kind world type environments, the things where you have to execute pretty well-known procedures – um, over and over in very similar problems are the easiest things to automate. Right. And so that's why, you know, back in the '90s when when uh, when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov in chess, and like Newsweek's cover was the the, the brain's last stand, um, because chess was sort of seen as this embodiment of the human intellect. Like, right when we give someone a compliment, we say like, "He or she is playing chess." Um, but it turns out chess is actually a fantastic environment for computers. It has this incredible database of previous games. It's totally constrained by very rigid rules. People take turns. All you have to do is like, and it's based on pattern recognition, basically. And so the thinking was once it conquers chess, that means it can go to everything. But we've seen that that's that's not at all the case, right? So I think of this spectrum from chess to self-driving cars. We've made huge progress, but there are some very significant challenges left. Because, And I think the way that we'll initially have those will be we'll have to basically restrict them to certain areas with like known rules because the problem is when they face new situations. Then to the other to the far end of the spectrum where we see like cancer research, where IBM Watson has been such a flop that some of the AI researchers I talked to were worried that it would taint the reputation of AI in healthcare. Huh. And as one of the oncologists I talked to said – the pro, you know, Watson did great on Jeopardy and terrible in cancer research because we know the answers to Jeopardy already. So that's where the AI does the mm-hmm. best. And so the argument I make in the book, or or that I you know use other AI researchers to make, <laughs> um, is that these more specialized skills we can actually outsource this stuff that's based on pattern recognition, whether that's diagnosis, you know, of certain things that come up over and over and over, or chess patterns to computers and allow us to focus on this much more high-level integration. So one of those researchers, I don't mention this, but what he's working on now is programs that allow people to design video games because the AI can take care of the like a lot of the coding stuff. Mm. We've seen that with websites, right? You used to have to like really sure. know HTML and be a specialist in that. Now you're much better off having good design aesthetic. You don't have to know anything about HTML. And so that's there's a, that's going on in a lot of places. Yeah, because pre-internet, it seems like specialists were sought out and more prized than they are today because 
now you have just this vast amount of knowledge on the internet available to anyone, including specialized knowledge and open source technology. Does that create a lot of opportunities for the generalist? Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't mean to denigrate specialists. Right. You know, I, I agree with Freeman Dyson. We need the frogs and the birds yeah. for a healthy ecosystem. But his point was we're only incentivizing the frogs, basically, and undervaluing the birds. And so as as a you know a, a scientist that I quote in the last chapter, who's maybe the most prominent immunologist in the world, says, we have everyone walking around with all the knowledge of humanity on their phone, and they have no idea how to integrate it. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about scientists specifically. He's trying to de-specialize scientific training, basically. Um, and in several, one of the themes of several chapters in the book is that this explosion, not only of knowledge, but also the rapidity with which it can be communicated to a large number of people means there are many more opportunities in combining knowledge that's already there in new ways than in just trying to push the frontier of knowledge that's like totally siloed from from other areas. So there are way more opportunities for these integrators than ever, which is why some of these basically businesses that I mentioned in one of the chapters have sprung up where all they do is take problems that have stumped specialists at NASA or at Eli Lilly or whatever and farm them out to people from other domains who can take things from multiple domains and, yeah. and and integrate. We live in this age where there are fewer and fewer company men than there used to be 50 or even 20 years ago. And more and more, we're seeing people who go through several careers in their lifetime or retire from a career at 50 and then pursue something totally different. And one would think that a big change like that should be carefully thought out. But I was interested to read that you say it's better to just take the plunge and do it, or as one researcher in the book says, act, then decide. Right. That's not what I've been taught my whole life. Whatever happened to think before you act. Right, huh? right. She said specifically, act and then think. And Herminia Ibarra, which she, she studies how people find careers that, that fit them well mm -hmm. and you know maximize their so-called match quality, which is the degree of fit between you and your work, which turns out to be very important for your fulfillment and your productivity. And, and one of her, since I still have no idea what I'm going to be when I grow up, one of her <laughs> quotes really stuck in my head where she said, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is there's this huge industry of personality quizzes and, you know, like self-help gurus and things like that who say either explicitly or implicitly, you should introspect and see who you are and then sort of march towards your truth, right? Mm -hmm. That's like the commencement advice. Picture yeah. yourself far down the road. And what Herminia Ibarra says is like, we have a ton of personality research in psychology and it all says that everyone realizes they've changed a lot in the past and then underestimates how much they're going to change in the future. Yeah. So they're not good at making right. those goals that far out. <laughs> and they, they can't intuit what skills they might have if they've never gotten to try something. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do instead is try set up these mini experiments. You try something and then you reflect on it and then keep zigzagging. And those are the people that eventually triangulate mm -hmm. these better these better matches. So she said this idea of uh, of, of thinking that you can intuit your own skills and interests a priori, like without trying stuff, is, is not borne out by the research. In fact, our knowledge of our own interests and abilities um, is constrained by our roster of previous experiences. And the mm -hmm. only way we can change that is to try some stuff. And one of the other things that's perhaps constraining people from wanting to try different things and go in a different direction at some point in their career is the fact that we seem to have gotten into this cult of grit over the past several years, particularly Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, popularized it. And we have this romantic notion of someone just sticking it out and never giving up until they achieve success. 
What's the problem with that mentality? And, and I should say, her and her colleagues' grit research appeals to me tremendously, mm-hmm. okay? But I think there's some constraints. And in fact, most of the constraints that I point out in the book are taken from their own papers, oh, really? right? They just haven't made it into popular translation, okay. basically. <laughs> um, so grit is this construct. It's a 12-question survey, basically, where half the points are awarded for resilience, perseverance. Mm-hmm. You know, they ask questions like, do you come back from setbacks, et cetera? And the other half for, quote, consistency of interests. So it asks, do you ever change interests from year to year? Do you ever start a project and, and not finish it? And the most famous study of GRIT, I think the one that initially blew it up, was at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where it was found that GRIT was a better, the results of the GRIT survey were better predictor of who would get through the rigorous orientation called beast barracks, where it's like physically and emotionally rigorous, a six-week orientation, um, than were traditional measures like test scores and stuff like that. So that's great. I mean, most of the most of the cadets, almost all of them make it through anyway. So we're not talking about big differences in prediction here. But the fact is, uh, life isn't a six-week orientation, right? These were right. these were a small group of people who were pre-selected for certain characteristics, which magnifies the apparent effect of grit, basically. But also, they they had a six-week goal in front of them. All these grit studies have been on these short-term, like very constrained goals, mm-hmm. and. So I wanted to look further out. So I looked at data on those military academy cadets. What do they do later, those gritty cadets? And it turns out that since about the mid-1990s, about half of those gritty cadets who get through Beast and get through the military academy leave the army like the day that they are allowed. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the Army Strategic Studies Institute published this paper where this one high-ranking general was talking about defunding West Point because he called it an institution that's teaching its – uh, cadets to get out of the military, right? And that's not the case. The fact is, as the Strategic Studies Institute pointed out, is that the military has stayed with this company man, move up in this linear way, stay in your lane career mm. progression, whereas the knowledge economy caused this this web of things that people can do where they can – it's much better for generalists or later specializers where they can take stuff they've learned in one area, transfer laterally to all these other domains, it's a tough problem for the army because the more likely they were to identify someone as high potential and give them some kind of scholarship, the more likely that person was to drop out as soon as they could because they build up these skills that they can use elsewhere. Yeah, that's fascinating. So they, they've started to have some success, better success with retention with this program they call – they were trying to throw money at people. That didn't work. <laughs> Talent-based branching where they actually let people sample. They pair them up with a coach who then helps them reflect on each of these experiences as – I didn't like this as much as I thought. I wasn't as good at that, et cetera. And they, they helped them triangulate their match quality. So wow. they've been doing better with that. Huh. One area where I would think specialists would have an advantage is forecasting the future, whether it's weather, politics, cultural trends. Past is prologue, right? But apparently I'm surprised to learn that that's not really the case. Why not? Yeah. So because they have too narrow of a view, and in fact, as uh-huh. they get more and more um, specialized and build up more and more credentials, uh experts, you know, in in sociopolitical and economic forecasting typically create these sort of narrow models of how the world works, but they know so much specific information they can fit any scenario to what they think is going to happen. So this is – the work you're talking about was this this 20-year study by Philip Tetlock where he gathered about 82,000 predictions. And what he found was that the best forecasters – were what he called foxes, these people who just had this incredibly wide array of interests. They were widely read. They they had no single mental model that they saw the world through. They had dabbled in different domains, even if they only worked in one. And they would bring all these different 
mental models to all the problems they had to try to forecast. Whereas the most decorated experts um, had this very, you know, some of them had worked on one problem their whole career. <laughs> and they would take the model from that problem and kind of apply it to everything. And so his most triumphant, I think, proving of this was when IARPA, which funds research on the U.S. intelligence community's toughest challenges, said, let's start a forecasting tournament where we'll have groups led by universities compete against intelligence analysts. And the intelligence analysts oh, have access to classified information. Yeah. Right. And these universities obviously don't unless they pick people for their team who happen to. So several of the teams picked these like decorated experts. Tetlock made an open call for volunteers, screened them, took in the people who had um, like the broadest array of interests and, and had them start forecasting and picked the best of them. And this group of people from the general public who just had incredibly wide reading habits, they weren't very dogmatic, they viewed their own ideas as hypotheses in need of testing, destroyed the intelligence analysts who work like in the CIA and the FBI. So... Um, now the intelligence community is interested in those people. Well, that, of course, brings to mind how Donald Trump denigrates the intelligence industry and says that he knows better than the CIA. We live in an interesting moment in this country where expertise seems to be under assault. President Trump prides himself on not listening to specialists and basing policy decisions on his own gut instinct. And there's just this general attitude of, what do we need some egg-headed scientist or economist yeah. for? Yeah. Are they right? Yeah. Yeah. You touched on some really important issues there. And first of all, when he says, you know, we don't need the intelligence community, it's to the intelligence community's incredible credit that they ran those forecasting tournaments to say, can uh, someone beat us? Mm -hmm. You know, can we be doing better? And when that happened, said, show us, work with us. Mm -hmm. Like, that's very different than what I think the president is often saying, right? He's not saying like, let me, maybe somebody's doing better than me. Right. Let's test that. There's a lack of curiosity right, of anything. Exactly. There's a lack of curiosity. Yeah. And that's important because I don't want to equate generalists with just dilettantes who aren't that interested in or good at anything, right? right. It's people with a genuine, um, a genuine curiosity. And I think, you know, the president seems like what would kind of be the, the sort of epitome of, of the hedgehogs uh, in, in Tetlock's research, which is that he does not seem to view his own ideas as hypotheses in need of testing that he then goes to other people to try to falsify and aggregate perspectives. Interesting. And yeah. and so these these foxes, the best forecasters, they need specialists. They use them for information and to understand how their mental models work. It's just they don't rely on any single one. Huh. So so I think if they couldn't draw on the knowledge that specialists create, they wouldn't be able to do what they do. Okay. So I, so I think we need I think we need both. But it's these generalists who were the best able to integrate. Mm -hmm. So they take information instead of opinions from specialists. Interesting. So you don't have any concerns that your book might be misconstrued to help make the case for Trump against specialists and expertise, huh? You know, I hadn't really thought of that. But but curiosity and holding your own ideas lightly and challenging them is is a theme in a lot of the book. Yeah. And and why and you know, there's a part of the book that shows that this this one of the single best. Uh, personality trait predictors of people who don't become dogmatic about issues um, is science curiosity, not even science knowledge, but science curiosity. And this was studied in these really cool ways that like tracked what people looked at. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I guess there's there's a little concern about that. And in the end of the book, I start talking about scientists who from the outside, most of the world views as like the epitome of specialization. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to show there is we all specialize to one degree or another 
at some point or another. So there's like a semantic issue of like what is a specialist or generalist. But I wanted to show there how do these people who need to be specialized still harness the benefits of what I call range or this more general curiosity. So the, the, the best people were these ones who sort of had an area where they could be anchored to some degree but then really spread their curiosity out so they could become these these integrators. Or like Philip Tetlock says in, in a very um, unsightly metaphor, he says, foxes with dragonfly eyes, because dragonfly's eyes are composed of thousands of lenses, each that take different pictures, and then it's integrated in the huh. in the dragonfly's brain. And so I, I like that, that. I know that you are a new father yourself. I yeah. believe you have a three-month-old son. What are some of the most important concepts that you plan on implementing into your parenting? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, and I've thought about this. So, and and by the way, like when my son was born, there was a harpist playing in the in the hospital, and I like wheeled his bassinet <laughs> over there. And 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 I totally admit, I had this thought in my head that was like, maybe this, you know, day one, he'll, this will push him toward. Well, I don't That's know, right. Being the harp. Were, were, were you making your wife listen to classical music when he was in the womb? Right. No, I didn't. But, you know, I definitely had the instinct <laughs> so, to want yeah. to. You Talk know? about the whole head start. To, yeah. I was listening to Django. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, you know, I, I had those those feelings too. I was joking with one of my friends who kept saying like, oh, are you going to write this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just trying to sabotage the competition while I'm going to raise the Tiger Woods of blockchain. Yeah. Um, and But, no, I'm, I'm not. So there are two things that I've thought of specific to my – my parenting. First, to most focus on match quality. So I want to take that concept from the military of talent-based branching with Herminia Ibarra's, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, and hold open a lot of opportunities for my kid. And then just be sort of a mentor who helps him reflect on those experiences and say, well, you know, what did you like and what were you good at? Get exposed to a lot of things so he can maximize his match quality. Because it turns out spending a little time sampling in exchange for getting match better match quality is a fantastic trade-off. Secondly, I think I'll embrace some of what Oliver Smithies, this Nobel laureate at the end of the book, um, told me about his Saturday morning experiment. experiment. So Smithies was just widely curiosity, widely curious. He would tinker with anything. I can't remember the acronym, but his his colleagues noticed this, and they came up with this acronym that was like N-B-G-B-O-K-F-O, which stood for No Bloody Good But OK for Oliver. And they would label equipment that they would leave so he could play with it. And he was just so curious. In his 50s, he took a sabbatical to go two floors away from his own lab and just learn another discipline. And it was integrating that in his 50s with the stuff that he'd done in the past that caused him to publish work at, in it, when he was about 60 that led to the Nobel Prize. And huh. he said all of his important breakthroughs came in what he called Saturday morning experiments, whereas he said, you don't have to be completely rational on Saturday. I could come in and I could play and I could experiment and I had a key to the supply closets and I could do whatever I wanted. And his journals, the University of North Carolina digitized all his journals and put them online with his commentary so I could go through. And I was interviewing him like every time all these breakthroughs because he would like mark things are on Saturdays. And he said, yeah, people ask me why I came to work any other day. Want to sort of combine <laughs> that that playfulness approach with that sort of talent-based yeah. branching. But th- that's interesting. I no more plan to force my kid to specialize than I plan to like force him to diversify, mm-hmm. right? If – as I mentioned before, Tiger Woods and Mozart showed this interest in prowess that their parents responded to, not the reverse. So I have no concern about like blindly missing no that. <laughs> um, but yeah. you know, if, if that happens, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight it. I'm just gonna let him let him lead the way. Yeah, it's interesting what you said a moment ago about the Nobel Prize winner because it, it makes me think of Einstein how he claimed that he would have his big breakthroughs when he would take a break and play the violin. And apparently, you say that. 
uh, I think Nobel laureates are something like 22 times more likely to be involved in activities like amateur acting or dancing or some type of performance. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Nationally <laughs> recognized, this is a study of the hobbies of scientists, nationally recognized scientists are much more likely to have hobbies like doing magic, acting, playing music, woodworking, you know, all this kinds of stuff, writing, um, painting, sculpting, uh, you know, just amateur mechanics than were average scientists, who average scientists were about the same as the general population. Um, but nationally recognized scientists had more hobbies and Nobel laureates had way more hobbies, right? And and so I don't know if it's that, again, that's the empirical finding and I don't know if it's that um, that wide curiosity helps them become Nobel laureates or they have these other things that they do where ideas come to them like Einstein, but sometimes it seems like those other interests actually end up informing mm -hmm. um, some of their work and v very clearly it's not harming them. Yeah. Well, interesting stuff. I can't wait to talk to you 20 or 30 years from now and uh, see where your son is and ask how he got there. So. Yeah. I'm, that's Gosh, it's hard to even think about that right yeah, now. Yeah. Hopefully we're still around. Uh, again, the book is called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David Epstein, thanks so much for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to David Epstein for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Keep up with David at davidepstein.com and follow him on Twitter at at David Epstein. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music plus sports, talk, comedy, and news, they have it all. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Go to SiriusXM slash kick to see offer details and subscribe. That's Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, X-M dot com slash kick. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com slash kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News.